Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all points in between, and welcome back to the Outtakes Podcast. I am your host, Tom Hood, and we're listening to We Ain't Them by Childish Gambino off of his royalty mixtape, and I'll have some words about that at the end. Today, I am talking once again to Naomi Slack, who is kind of pinch-hitting podcasting for me this week. Um, The original guest kind of fell through, and then I thought maybe I would just take an off week for the holidays, but then I thought... People love to listen to podcasts when they're cooking, and of course, Thanksgiving, all the cooking in the world happens, and so I thought I would put out another one for you guys. I know that, you know, cooking with friends and family is one of the great joys of Thanksgiving, and is a fun thing to do, but if you like to cook alone, or you happen to be cooking alone, or if you just want to listen to a podcast and cook in silence with people, um, this is maybe a podcast for you. Um, So we have a bit of a long conversation today, so I'm not going to overstay my welcome in the intro, especially because I don't really have anything else to say. So without further ado, um, welcome back to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy. Brought me back on stage in a suit, I went hard, cause niggas say that I'm soft, even black thought thought, I'm aiming a little hard, I gotta be honest, feeling like the other stuff is kinda behind us, making jokes here and there, done got us some dollars, trying to show the whole world what it is, and it ain't a game, you say homie, stay the course, ain't shit changed. Weird night and everybody Yeah, no, actually, speaking of pie, um, Sarah got an actual pumpkin um, and made, like, a pumpkin squash combination soup, but then she also, like, pureed a bunch of pumpkins. Now there's just, like, a bunch of, like, frozen pumpkin goop in our freezer, which we will then... She's going to make a pumpkin pie. She's going to make a pumpkin pie, yeah. We're actually doing Thanksgiving on Black Friday. Um, this is basically what we figured out because, like, we're not going anywhere. We're just going to, like, stay home. So, like... I'm gonna, I, I have to do one of two things. I either have to study for the GRE or write a treatment for my next script idea. Uh, one of those two things has to happen. <laughs> and then on Friday, we're gonna do like a, a big like Thanksgiving dinner thing. All right, so let's get this going. Naomi, what are you drinking? I am drinking Colorado Rocky Mountain Huckleberry tea. What is a Huckleberry? I don't know. <laughs> I would assume it's a berry. I know you can make it into a pie. I know it's delicious tea that my friend Becca gave me. I don't know what it is, though. All right. I am drinking a Rar and Sons Winter Warmer. It's an English-style dark ale. Uh, Rar and Sons is an independent brewery out of Fort Worth, Texas. I've been to the brewery. It was fucking awesome. Um, I got a lot more buzz there than I was expecting because the beer there is very cheap and they give you a lot of it. Um, but it was a really good time. Um, and probably the ideal conditions to watch Mad Max was like somewhat buzzed and in Fort Worth. It was great. I still haven't seen that movie. It's uh, I can't give it a full-throated recommendation and I definitely can't give it a recommendation if you don't see it in theaters, unfortunately. Really? Why is that? It's all, it's entirely visual. I mean, it's such a visual movie. It's all about the production design and, you know, the action and the cinematography and everything else is very much taken a back seat. You know, I, I got to imagine the script was like 50 pages long because the, there's, the dialogue is so sparse. Um, and so much of it is just, you know, George Miller just doing his thing and creating those action scenes. And it's, it's, brilliant in that way but it's also kind of thin it it left me feeling a little bit empty but it's very impressive in what it does okay well i guess i'll just have to watch it on the biggest screen i can i guess yeah good good idea 
All right, so uh, let's uh, let's jump into it. Um, okay. So would you like to introduce the concept here? Because it's really kind of your baby, as it were. Okay, so the concept for today's outtake is a Facebook conversation between you and me. Um, it's kind of the trajectory of our friendship um, over pretty much since we met. Um, but I think the the reason why it's uh, good media to discuss for this podcast is, I mean, inherent to the whole concept of what you're trying to do here is identifying with your former self. And we talk a lot about identity just because of, you know, how we interact with each other. And that's that comes through in the Facebook chats that I have selected for us to look at. But it's also a really interesting, for me anyway, it was a really interesting look at the trajectory of a friendship over, what, like two two years at this point, two and a half almost. Um, and, and, you know, what it's, what it's like to start to get to know someone that will be one of your best friends. Very conceptually apt. So, um, yeah, so we do not start at the very first, uh, interaction that we ever had and we certainly don't end at the latest. Um, we, we end quite some time before there, but we're, uh, we're going between late 2013 and late 2014 so it's a, a roughly a year so the way we're going to do this is we're going to do a little bit of a of a radio play um in which we will be playing each other uh, actually i'm going to be doing a naomi but no just kidding <laughs> wait i was like wait you didn't tell me about that i'm not prepared for that these conversations the ones that naomi has curated um they start on uh in november in early november um, in 2013. And this would have been about two months after we met. So we had known each other for a little while at that point. Um, but clearly I didn't know all that much as we're about to find out with the first few words of this conversation. Actually, that reminds me. Do you write much? Creatively, that is. I do. Just about daily. Oh, wow. I never got that impression for some reason. <laughs> no kidding. Why is that? I've actually been in Bullet a few times. I don't know. Maybe just because you never mentioned it. Maybe because you seem to put together for a creative type. Yeah, I, I would imagine you'd have been in Bullet if you wrote. Ah, you've got to catch me on one of my many off days. I have to pull it together for Bullet to give off an impression of togetherness and leadership, etc. If I'm ever wearing a baseball cap, that's a good tip off. Ah, the pink Yankees cap? Yes, that one. You're observant. I often keep such observations to myself, because there's a damn fine line between observant and creepy as fuck. Nah, you right. Therefore, observant. So is the Yankees hat your red hunting cap, so to speak? I should know that reference, but I can't quite place it. Catcher in the Rye. That explains it. Didn't particularly like the book, but yes. On the note of Catcher in the Rye, I like Tobias Wolf's Old School infinitely better. At the risk of offending you tremendously... No worries, that's hard to legitimately do. People who dislike Catcher generally read it for the first time when they were too old or saw too much of themselves in Holden. Was probably too young, actually, because I don't remember much about it at all except for that impression. I had a weird maturity curve anyway. I've always been told by adults that I'm either put together or mature, but I wasn't open-minded or even partially myself until the summer before college. So I need to reread it and such. It's a quick read. 
So even if you still don't like it on the second read, it only takes an afternoon. It's just at home, not at school. We'll do over winter break. And you should read Old School, also a quick read. I've got the wiki page open now. Sounds like a fun read. It was in my high school creative writing course. Also, if you haven't read Nabokov, you should. Actually, he's way more awesome than the other book. I read Lolita, Pale Fire, and Despair. Lolita's one of my all-time favorite novels. Lolita was okay. Just read that one this summer. Pale Fire was brilliant, but over my head at the time. Haven't read Despair. If you loved Lolita, which was hauntingly or creepily gorgeous, then you would love An Invitation to a Beheading. That one is one of my favorite all-time novels. I only say Lolita was okay because it massively creeped me out. Which is odd because McCarthy doesn't creep me out. I think it's most uncomfortable because Humbert is sympathetic. Yes, that's exactly it. It makes you relate to him. It's nuts and brilliant. It's always good to know, however, that Nabokov said Humbert is a monster. That is good to know. Nabokov was also tremendously brilliant in language and lepidemorology. Probably misspelled, study of moths and butterflies. What a boss. I love him so much. We have consensus. You seriously need to make an invitation to, be to a beheading next on your list so we can talk about it. I'll trade you for a book of your choice being next on my list. Have you read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, specifically Love in the Time of Cholera? Yes, I just got done with that book this summer also. It was awesome. Excellent. Well, I'll reserve that right. Nothing immediately comes to mind. And that's it. Until a week later. Right, yeah. Yeah, clearly we don't know each other on a personal level that well at this point. Like, what's so interesting is that we have, like, a feel for each other's personalities, but no biographical information at all. Yeah, I think the reason, and most of what's interesting about our early messages is that they're all seven days apart. So I think we were just talking on Wednesdays after Bullet was over, probably to continue a conversation that we've been having after the meeting anyway. Yeah, I think so. Just looking over it, like, you know, this this wasn't as, as long ago as, as some of the stuff that we've been looking at, so it's not as different, I think. I think uh, it is I, different. I agree. But it is different. I mean, both of us, I've been in out of college, rather, not in the real world, because everything is the real world. I've been out of college for a year at this point, and you've been out for six months. So I think it's still, I mean, we're still looking at fairly early in college at the very beginning of when you went to William & Mary, which was a big transition. So I think it's still a good marker to look at. Um in terms of a, I definitely, I don't think I'm the same person. I definitely hope I wasn't the same person as I was at the time that I wrote a lot of these messages. Although I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find like what specifically, it's hard to put a finger on like what is different. You don't know what it is, but you know it when you see it. Like I, I definitely know that myself now at 22 is different from, from 20 year old me. I guess it's just because as you get older, you're not given to drastic shifts in personality and worldview. And so the changes are there. And when they add up to a, you know, whole, you can sense them, but it's much harder to put your finger on the differences, like an, an, an individual difference. Like, Oh yeah, I wouldn't say that now. So you're saying it's more like an erosion than an avalanche. I think that's definitely true for you and less true for me, but we'll see that as we 
go on in these conversations. And I think part of it also might be the influence of our friendship on each other. I mean, I know you've changed me as a person and I'm really grateful for that. Um, you've definitely been a positive influence in my life. So I, I would be happier if I were as even a slightly different person at the end of not these messages, but you know, I guess not even really the end of anything, just at the, in the current state. So in this conversation, another thing that's really striking is like, I didn't remember this. Like you were like, if you haven't read Novikov, you should. And I was like, we knew nothing about each other. Like clearly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if I laughed at that moment, but like, I could have was like, that's the first time everyone, anyone's ever recommended Novikov to me. It's always <laughs> been the other way around. Like what, what's I going on? I think that might have solidified our friendship at the very beginning too because there are some moments reading back where I was like why did I make Tom have that conversation with me that is not a conversation for Tom like he Tom doesn't want to hear that rant like <laughs> yeah although interestingly the thing about beheading beheading is definitely not one of Nabokov's like more preeminent works like it, it rarely shows up in in a lot of the the discourse on him and also I think part of the reason for that is because like you know obviously as an English reader i will read english language discourse and beheading was in russian and so i think people try to uh, like tend to when, when doing english language criticism they'll only talk about his english language works and so like if there's <laughs> if there if there's russian criticism on him i just like I, and there probably is like i don't know it like yeah so that's like that part of his career is kind of closed off to me and i think like the culture around nabokov has kind of done that as well has kind of partitioned his career into his different linguistic i don't want to say phases but i guess i guess phases just this you know his russian phase his german phase and his english phase right so you were right it, it was i think it was i think it was russian it was actually translated by dmitry nabokov i don't know if they're related or not his son yeah uh, Dimitri, oh, yeah, Dimitri translated a lot of his uh, Russian works and was also an opera singer. Oh, cool. And it was actually in collaboration with him. And the book is dedicated to Vera. So I wouldn't be surprised if she also um, helped translate it or was part of that process, actually. Okay. Shall we move on? I think we shall. All right. So, yeah, this is literally just like a week later. Mm -hmm. And this is following up on a uh, some sort of point of debate during our meeting yeah i don't remember specifically what that was i didn't cut that conversation so we were coming in in medias race or anything like there was no context i led i led with this yeah you did <laughs> um with regards to confusing bugs bunny with porky pig they were both voiced by mel blanc that said bugs never had a stutter and i give a wikipedia link to porky pig ah uh, my bad but at least not a fatal mistake <laughs> Indeed. However, if you ever happen to confuse Marvel and DC Comics, I will have to kill you. Well, given that I have never read a comic, I am not likely to confuse them. Fatal mistake seemed like rather dramatic language. Indeed it was, but I think I'm alright. You are. I'm not breaking out the knife collection. Hell, all of it's in storage anyway. It's murdering off-season. Knives are the best. They cut steaks so that I can eat them. How very droll. I said that with my most obnoxiously thick pseudo-British accent in my head. Droll is a word that always confuses me. That's even better. I don't even know if anyone uses the word droll outside of the context of Douglas Adams. I googled, and also the word droll sounds like what it means. And I love Douglas Adams. Hitchhikers or Dirk Gently? Or both? 
Hitchhikers. All of it is so perfect. I like one, two, and four a lot. Five is good. Didn't care for the third, though. One, two, and four are also my favorites. It's so interesting that four feels so different. It's basically just a romantic comedy, but he handles it beautifully. Because he is a beautiful man and writer. Do you know if he was on anything, like acid or something? God, I hope so. The Salmon of Doubt, which in fairness he didn't finish, just feels like he wrote it in one night while tripping balls. I want to read that one so bad. It was going to be the third Dirk Gently book. And I guess that's it, right? That is it. So I think I, I'm going to guess at why you chose this. And then uh, if, you, if you could fill me in. Um, I think you Please. chose this because it's representative of a, a mutual sense of humor, which... I think we kind of developed over time. It wasn't necessarily my sense of humor or your sense of humor, but like some sort of melding of the two, which we then created. And this was like sort of the inception of that. And I think that is found in the whole uh, knife discourse. Yeah, I I think that I don't think that was the actual reason I chose this particular excerpt, but that's a better reason than why I picked it. Um, I think you're correct in that analysis. I think, I think like the development of our mutual friend humor is also really interesting because I just kind of kept on going with my humor and you kept on going with yours. And it was more like they crashed into each other than any kind of collaborative melding experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that is a good That is a good representation of that. That is uh, podcast friendly, let's say. (laughs) I think I think it must have been you ended a bullet meeting with like a blee, a blee, that's all folks. Why would I have done that, though? I that cannot be what I I would not have done that at a meeting. I don't think anyway. No, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I was really loopy or no, maybe Tim did it because that sounds like a Tim kind of thing to do. And then I got the reference wrong. Yeah, you're like, hey, Bugs Bunny. It's like, ah, close, but no cigar. (laughs) I like the discourse of the word droll because it's such a useless word. It is. And I I like that that's also representative of us just like waxing poetic about language without really looking it up at all <laughs> and just commenting on it but it makes no sense <laughs> like like droll became to me and i think that it's appropriate in that sense is like it became like it was nothing but like the essence of douglas adams's like sense of humor like that's all the word became to me so it was like sort of indefinable by any other means that makes sense I originally knew it as the French word droll, which I am not even going to attempt to pronounce in French right now because that's just not going to happen. But I originally came at it that way. So I was like, I think this probably means the same thing in English, but I don't know. And that's why I had to look it up. Yeah, I like that idea. It sounds like what it means. Although that weirdly, um, have you ever read Atonement? Yes. Uh, do you remember the the dirty poem I forget the dude's name, but he sends it to Cecilia and then... It's a letter, not a poem, right? No, it's a poem. Or, like, it's a letter, but there's there's a poem in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and then, like, it's like she understands what the word cunt is just, like, by reading it. And it was like, and in the, in the prose, it even says, like, it was almost onomatopoetic. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love that. <laughs> I love that that's where your brain goes when we're talking about words that sound like they mean. If we want to get to the essence of Tom, that's what that is. <laughs> and it's really funny because I think that's part of your humor that I've picked up, actually. And I noticed that going back through all of this today. Right. But it's like it's Ian McEwan. It's like one of the greatest 21st century novelists his discourse on the word cunt so it's like it's not just like i say the word cunt and then like giggle like an idiot but no i definitely make things uh blue very quickly yes you do i meant more that we're talking about the word droll which is relatively innocuous and you go straight there and i am not going to say that word on the podcast Although that's another thing that I turned you on is that like you used to be really offended by that word and now I am no longer offended by it. You should not go any further than that. I'm no longer offended by it. Um, All right. So we'll we'll just leave it at that. All right. So you want to move on to our next one? Yes, actually, it's funny because the next one is still the same, uh, still a week later, same day, just later in that conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is just like a. It was like 20 minutes later, but we, we changed topics dramatically, so dramatically that it warrants a whole nother reading. Yeah, uh, because th- there was just nothing interesting in between, well, nothing funny in between the, in between that, so. Right. Okay, so then this is, um, we're talking about your summer plans, right? Yes. IR program? In Argentina, that is. Probably not, no. I couldn't care less about the grades, just want the experience. Sorry, I'm in international relations. Like, what you're studying, I can't... words. Oh yeah, that is what I'm studying. I'm also lacking words. I can't... words, Naomi. I can't either, Tom! Stop misspelling my name, please! T-H-O-M. Better? I apologize. It's all good. I don't know if I've ever corrected you, or had the occasion to. You did tell me once. I plead sick brain. Please sustained. Or something. Legal jargon. Blah, blah, blah. I am innocent? Huzzay! The only thing that actually pisses me off is Tommy. Oh god, I would never. That name is off limits. To anyone who isn't deaf, dumb, and blind. And great at pinball. Yeah, I also hate when people try to abbreviate my name, so I understand. And who get molested by their creepy uncle. Man, that's a fucked up album. Wait, what? How does one even abbreviate your name? Usually Nene, or something equally awful. Oh, no. That's barely even an abbreviation. 1111, make a wish, because superstition is fun and not stupid. I missed it. Damn. I was making tea. I feel like tea is a more worthy endeavor anyway. What kind? Mint with honey, aka cold juice. Gotcha. I'm a strictly black tea man myself. Well, technically it is black tea with mint, but I drink any kind except chamomile. Once you go black and all that nonsense. (laughs) That is actually true of coffee for me. Ditto. I always drink my coffee black. Unless I'm feeling homesick. Then it's a Cafe Au from the grind because they're the only ones who do it right. If I'm in France, I will get a Cafe Au Otherwise, all black, all day. It's also a New Orleans thing. Note to self. Great exploitative porno name. What? Which part, rather? All black, all day. Ah, I figured. Interracial porn sensation. Because interracial isn't a condescending or racist adjective when describing sex at all. And that's it. Oh, see, that and what's interesting about putting those two 
like the conversation we just had about Ian McEwan and this next to it is you can see like the that I kind of didn't get your humor all the way yet and that it took me a minute. <laughs> so we're I guess sort of both trying to read each other and I keep trying to redirect you and you won't be redirected which also supports my it was like two trains crashing into each other <laughs> rather than and sort of an intentional mix. Okay, so yeah, uh, speaking of um not being redirected. So I start talking about Tommy, the Who album. And at some point, I think that I knew that you didn't get it and just didn't care, which was kind of shitty. I don't know. I don't know. And like, maybe I thought I was like, yeah, she's just not going to even indulge that because she gets it. Or maybe she doesn't know at all. No, I didn't know at all, which you realize now, I'm sure that I did not know that at all. But at the time, you probably thought I got it and was just breezing past it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I just assumed that you had like, you know, a, a, a substantial knowledge of 60s prog rock concept albums. You know, someone has actually tried to get me into prog rock in the past. It did not work very well. I mean, yeah, I mean, the Who, I mean, prog rock, I don't, I don't know if even, in fairness, even existed as an idea, like as a genre until like the 70s with King Crimson. But like the Who is kind of a, a predecessor to that because, yeah, I mean, Tommy was one of the first albums, which like rock albums, which told a story from beginning to end. You know, there were characters and plot points and, you know, the, there was a beginning, middle and end, as it were. And so, yeah, that, that's a sort of progressive element of of rock okay then i definitely need to go re-listen to prog rock in general and also this album because it's only been in the past since the beginning of college that i've been able to appreciate story albums i don't know why that wasn't a thing before college but it wasn't and now that i get it and really enjoy them i should probably go back and revisit so yeah, so that's that's definitely an early early example of just different thoughts, different senses of humor, kind of kind of crossing paths and like kind of kind of learning, getting to know you. And so I think this next one, which you uh, you apparently have to introduce again. I'm sorry, I didn't mean you to make you start all of them, but <laughs> I think it just more naturally went that way. No, it's fine. Um, and and this this one doesn't even require as much context because I mean, it, like it starts off fairly logically. Like it's an it actual does. conversation starter. Um, Weird for us, yeah. <laughs> so I think only a month into that first semester that I was there, the poetry editor of Bullet Quarterly quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather yeah. abruptly, and then you just handled poetry for the rest of the semester, and so I didn't mean to impose. But I thought that maybe you could use an extra hand. So then I message. Right. And I will clarify that at the end of this. Okay. <clears throat> hey, weird thing that occurred to me yesterday. Did you ever figure out a poetry editor? Or do you just want to continue without one next semester? Would you like to be it? If you think that would be best, I'd be happy to. Seems like you've got things under control, though. I'd love to talk to you about it. Slash think it could be awesome. Well, I'm flattered. <laughs> I'm around this weekend and Tuesday if you'd like to meet. Um, yes, I can do I can do Friday, Saturday morning, Sunday morning or Monday. Got a morning exam on Friday, but I'm free after that. You? Yep, whenever you like. All right, cool. Tomorrow around lunchtime? Perfect. Just let me know when you're out and want to eat. 
oh yeah, we don't talk again until February 10th, so I guess we have to stop. But you weren't imposing at all. I had actually been asking for a poetry editor for the entire semester, and I had been thinking of you to do it, but I didn't want to push you. Um, so it's weird. We were both coming at it from the same angle. And I also didn't know if you wrote or if you would be a good judge of poetry, which now I know you don't write poetry, but you are a great judge of poetry. I just didn't know that at the time. And actually, I had been talking to somebody else at the time to be the poetry editor when you were like, hey, weird thing, but can I do this? And then I backed out on the other person and chose you instead, which they were mad at me for a while about, but I think that's better now. I hope. Sorry. You know who you are. <laughs> I think like as an editorial decision for Bullet, it was the right move because you were younger and more invested in the magazine for longer than that person would have been, but I could have handled it better for sure. So that's what that was for. Man, am I glad that I don't know who it is? <laughs> I never want to know. <laughs> I don't know if you've met this person or not. I think you have. I don't know. That was, I mean, that that, that was definitely an interesting um, thought. I mean, that was the one position that was open at that time. And I thought it was actually, it was a good idea that, like, I don't write poetry at all. So I could kind of remove myself from, I would do it this way, or I can do it better. Or, you know, or even the jealousy when I come across something good, but then you want to kind of tear it down or something like that. Like, I try to, like, in all instances, I try to push against that. Like, I, I try to block that little voice out. But with poetry, it's not even a concern because it's just I read this all the time, obviously, but it's from a removed perspective. That makes a lot of sense. And before before having met and become friends with you, I would not have thought to hire in that manner for a poetry position, to be honest. Um, but I think you're very correct. I mean, the, the previous hire, I, I don't know about hiring decisions, but the previous poetry editors had all been poets. So um, I think both ways of doing it are perfectly valid, depending on the individual person, but it wouldn't have even occurred to me. So I'm I'm glad that you made such a positive contribution. Yeah, and and speaking of which, if I if I can toot my own horn a little bit more here, um, I remember the first meeting that I was poetry editor, like, and had the opportunity because the job is largely lead discussion. You know, yes. it should be someone who is knowledgeable of poetry for sure, and lead discussion using that knowledge. And the fact that you, you know, you get first look at this, you should definitely read it beforehand. You don't want to read it cold. So it's somewhat performative also, as well as leading discussion, because you read all the pieces. Exactly. And I, I just started to notice after that happened that just the way that our meetings went, I feel, changed a little bit. Other editors started to emulate that a little bit. Like, they liked maybe just how that went they liked how the discussions were led or they just liked that style of being an editor and discussion leader and so i noticed the tone shifted a little bit and that might be the most lasting contribution uh probably is the most lasting contribution to the publication that i've ever made is the is the fact that like people who like now you think about it like there are people in it this semester who don't know me 
who never knew me and might not have even ever heard of me. But the way that meetings are run now, um, as far as just these very specific, you know, editors go, is a little bit more performative, as you mentioned, um, and a little bit more, I think, analytical. Because I think a lot of like before I started and what I would do is like jump in and like say my piece. I would like, here's some analysis, here's some criticisms, here are just my my feelings on this, but my feeling not just pure emotive reaction, but also intellectual reaction. Whereas I feel like before, I think a lot of editors just said, just read it and then went comments. What's really interesting about hearing your perspective on how you've changed the magazine is something else that I remembered based on reading these conversations, which I cut out, which I retroactively, which I hadn't, because I used to, in private, not in public, in front of the whole of Bullet, because I was still trying to lead everybody, I would lament all the time about how I missed the founders and I missed the people that had all graduated and left and that had made up bullet. And the way that they ran meetings was more like what you were talking about, where they would be very objective and give their comments and analysis for the most part, the art side of the house, the visual art side of the house did not do this this way, but it was more like that. It was more analytical. They were all English majors um, except for the, Except with some exceptions, but most of them were English ma- English majors, so they were coming at it from an objective art perspective, which I think is really important for uh, trying to be the arbiter of discussion on that work. So, what's really what I I think your impact on it is really that you picked up on how to lead discussion. So when the the quicker hiring decisions that I had to make as editor maybe needed, uh, you know, the the people who were in those positions needed a little practice before they could actually come into a leadership position. Not, I mean, not that they weren't good at their jobs beforehand at all. Um, seriously, I mean, I stand by most of the decisions that I made in hiring people to bullet, but I think that you did a really good job in preserving real continuity um, that I couldn't have been able to do by myself. So you were you were kind of more like the rock behind that in a weird way. I remember I remember too, like you talked about, like you said it to my face, which I appreciate, like when we talked about like the risk. There was one risk about putting me up there, which was in meetings, I had been at times hurtful. Yeah. At times too the not not just blunt, but put things in in just too animated and biting a way. And the idea was that tone needs to come down because if the discussion starts there, first of all, it has nowhere to go. Like you can't just come in and like, it's already turned up to 11. And second of all, like it's one, not going to be productive and two, not going to be fun. And so yeah. That that was something that which I, f- I found uh, easier than I expected. Um, there were only a couple times when I really kind of it, it was usually like I would I would say very little at the beginning. And then right as we were about to vote, I would just come in with, here's why I think this is bad. <laughs> and then we would vote. I mean, yeah. And I, there that wasn't really the reason why I had the concern. Yes, you can't just start the conversation from a place of animosity, but. 
think something that's I think important to like, especially for listeners who aren't familiar with Bullet, which I'm sure there aren't that many of them, to be honest. But um, for for the the two that maybe don't know, it, it's anonymous, so the writer could be in the room and you would have no idea. And if you start from a place that you're just like attacking or making fun of it, and you didn't really make fun of it per se, that wasn't your MO really, but people have done that in the past. And so that's kind of, I was afraid of someone getting hurt by what might be a joke. Um, Because I mean, I know a lot of the jokes that even friends of mine have made knowing it's my work they still hurt at the end of the day sometimes and you you know you get over it because they're your friends but if you're not friends and it's your poetry editor who's saying that uh, even if it's meant as a joke it does not encourage that person to contribute again and it it may actually like hurt them writing in the future or cause self-deprecation and that that's like never good so all right um so it's good that we you know that that doesn't segue neatly into the next topic, but you know we've we've taken a a, a bit of a, a turn for for the in depth, and so this one this this next conversation takes place four months later, yes, um, five months later. So a lot of time has passed, and uh, we've grown a lot closer in in that period um, for sure. And yet, the abruptness with which this conversation starts is definitely. It, but it was definitely felt at the time as well. You know, it's not like you're walking yeah. into something like with no context because like even at the time I was kind of like walking into something with no context. Like, wait, wait, what? Like a little bit, not like not no context, but not much. It really was like I walked into a room and started yelling. Like that's that's how this conversation started and you knew you knew what I was talking about. Like you had context. You knew this was going on, but like yeah, it's like I it's like on one of those really bad network TV dramas where there's this like I don't know, maybe a lawyer even who just like walks in the room, slams open the door and like shoves everything off the table and like beats their fist against the wall. It was very <laughs> It was a lot. It was a lot to have no segue into. <laughs> right. But like I said, it's the same idea of like you start and you're already at 11. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe we should work on that. <laughs> Basically, what you're learning is that there's a little bit of Bernie Sanders in both Naomi and myself in which there's just like a little or no buildup. And there's just like. Turn it up to 10. Anyway, okay, so I guess I guess that's enough that's enough context and I'll just uh read it. So this was the beginning of April 2014. You know what I've been realizing? I could run if I wanted to. I could say fuck my relationship, fuck New York, and fuck my conception of the future. And I could go abroad for the summer and do an internship there for an awesome nonprofit. I could live in another country like I've always wanted to right now, but I'm not. I'm not. And why not? Uh, I assume because you value your relationship more than self-fulfillment at this point. Am I wrong? Because my relationship gives me self-fulfillment in a totally different sense than that internship would. But is that fair? Or real at this point? And I can't have both? That would be too fucking easy. Does this make any sense at all? Well, yeah. 
Compromise and sacrifice are part and parcel of a relationship. It just depends how much you're willing to compromise or sacrifice. A lot, apparently. And it's not just me. It's him sacrificing, too. Why am I not being more critical? It seems like that's what you're doing right now. I guess. But it feels like too little too late. Like the choice of it mattering has already been removed from me. So you're mad at yourself for not questioning yourself sooner, but not because you think you made the wrong choice. I don't know. I feel stupid and duped and angry. Kind of like you signed a contract with the clause written in invisible ink? No. Because I know I have an out if I want it. And I don't, fundamentally, which is scary as shit and calls for a lot of self-criticism. I mean, in some sense, it can get pretty morbid and cynical to constantly think about some default out in a relationship. Yeah, that's fair. It's just... It's a new thought, not a constant. I think the scariest thing about a breakup is that you lose a significant portion of your own identity. Because your identity has been partially constructed through and by your significant other. The prospect of a breakup can seem impossible because you think that it would be a kind of suicide. The trick, I think, is to remember that identities are constructed and reconstructed all the time. Although it can be a thoroughly unpleasant process. Damn. I'm going to ponder that for a minute. Okay. So, this whole ordeal, whether I like it or not, is a restructuring of my self, whatever I choose, whatever occurs. Because, as it stands now, I value my relationship as an important part of life, incredibly. I think I just need to ask myself whether this is a positive thing, whether it's what I want to see myself as. It seems like when a crisis like this is resolved, as it were, it would have to result in a change of some kind. I hope. The only problem is that that change is going to be huge, whatever it is. Absolutely. And that's frightening. Yep. It's a precipice, and either choice is jumping off. But into what? No idea. Well, as always, best of luck. I'll be in touch. Thank you. So much. So, um, I'm going to comment on this before you, which I know is odd for these discussions thus far, but I'm actually really glad that I got to read that out loud to you because I, especially at the very end, I really wanted you to understand how much I appreciated your being there for me in that moment because I hadn't talked to anybody else about doubts about that relationship or wanting to be as committed as I was at that time and I needed to air it somewhere and I felt like I could do that with you and you would not bullshit me you would tell me not what I wanted to hear but you wouldn't be rude about it and I really didn't I couldn't find a way to to punctuate that thank you where you could understand what I meant the way you can when I'm talking or like you can see what I'm saying based on body language or facial expression. Yeah, those are the comments I have thus far for it. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a tough time, and I, uh, 
a big thing for me that I wanted to remind myself of was like how like not about me it was like this was not I was not involved in this at all and so this was the last I heard about it before you broke up actually and even after that I like asked like hey something happened didn't it and you were like yeah and you were like I don't want to talk about it I was like I'm kind of relieved to hear that honestly I'm not sure I want to talk about it either and then we just didn't talk about it for a while um, and it was good. And, and a big part of it, I mean, something that either gave me objectivity or incredible subjectivity was the fact that like, I didn't know that I'd like, I didn't know that person. Like I, I had like, we had met, but I still didn't really know anything about that person. And so I was, I was able to view it just as like, what does this mean to you? Cause I had no conception of like, you as a unit, you as a couple, um, or anything like that. I wasn't concerned about that, and I didn't have any kind of selfish inclination of wanting to preserve that unit, which I'm not saying that like other people that you would have talked to would have, but I think that that is a pitfall that is not uncommon. And so I think I wasn't the only person you could have talked to, but I'm glad that you talked to me, not because I'm some font of incredible wisdom, but because I was in the right position to talk about what you want to talk about, which is, all right, let's stop thinking about this in terms of us and start thinking about it in terms of me and what does this mean. Which is also a reason why I'm really glad that I ended up talking to you, because I... Besides knowing that you wouldn't be judgmental and you would be really helpful, you, you, I mean, looking at it now, I genuinely think you were a font of incredible wisdom. Like, you you said things that were comforting and honest at the same time, which is a really hard line to walk. And you did start, and you weren't even explicit about reframing it in terms of me instead of in terms of the relationship you but you you made you you started that pivot for me or maybe not started it but you helped me see the pivot I guess that needed to happen I mean the writing on the wall was already there at that point I just didn't want to believe it and that's okay but you were a really good friend and and incredibly you you knew exactly how to because because of all the things that you were saying where you were coming from with this whole discussion you knew how to talk to me you knew me as a person at this point like the reason why I chose this particular part of our conversation is it shows that you know in that four months between us me appointing you for your position us becoming friends that's a relatively short time period for people to know each other well enough to be able to communicate that well over Facebook, no less. I think it was really indicative of like some of the more deeper, mushier parts of our friendship. <laughs> and I, I remember that as being like a big, it, it was a pivotal moment um, because, I mean, obviously it was a big change in your life. And so it would just change some things about just, you know, who you were and how you thought about yourself. And even though like it didn't really change so much how I thought about you because I never thought of you in terms of, you know, your boyfriend, which is good. Like, I don't think anyone should necessarily view people in that context, but like mine was like more removed than usual. Whereas I think that you were better at being able to see like how profound an effect Sarah has had on me 
and like how she shapes my personality and my worldview. Whereas at the time I was so ignorant about like what that relationship had been that I was actually more surprised when it was over and I saw some changes because I didn't anticipate them because I saw you as basically just like as a single person. <laughs> but um, I remember just being um, honored by the idea that, you know, that there is this level of trust um, because trust isn't easy to come by. I don't trust people very easily at all. And trust means a lot to me. And so that gesture, um, I think it means a lot to anyone, but for me especially, who is inherently untrustworthy, or not, in, not that I am inherently untrustworthy, but I find people inherently untrustworthy to know that I trust you and you trust me is the, I think it's the final, not that I distrusted you beforehand, but like trust me with that sensitive of information is kind of the final yeah. cementing of like, this is a friendship that is not circumstantial. It's not based on a, you know, activity together. It's not something that's going to dissolve. You know, this is something that's going to, you know, stick with you for um, a long time, at least. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I I think, I, I so I'm actually completely the opposite way with people, or at least I definitely used to be the opposite way with people where I would, it was, it was an innocent till, till proven guilty kind of thing in terms of trust for me where I would trust, trust people until you gave me a reason not to. And there are obvious pros and cons to, that way of going through life but even even with that I wouldn't have gone into that kind of uh I don't know even what to call it um that that kind of a discussion I wouldn't have had with just anyone so it that is definitely I mean we had had some moments where it was definitely like you're a good friend I think this is one of the one of those times where I think we just like you said acknowledged that that was this was kind of a best friendship at this point and I actually remember I was walking talking to you on messenger um walking to Wawa um to meet and we'll, we'll mention this guy or you mentioned it before we'll mention him later uh to meet Noah um because the previous night we had been at this just small gathering, actually, but he had gotten rather uh, intoxicated and got more so uh, after we parted ways the previous night. And so we were meeting up at Wawa for, for you know, some hangover cure for him. And so I was thinking like, oh, man, you know, I got to make sure that he's OK and stuff. And then I get, you know, kind of blindsided by by this, as it were. Um, it was such a weird, cause it like even weirder to think that like we ended this conversation and then I went and got like a fucking like wa vitamin water or something from the wall. <laughs> like, it seems like such a momentous thing. And yet like, that's, what's so interesting about like life versus like life does not fit into a kind of narrative. Like this is the most TV script like our dialogue gets, I think it's very high stakes. It's very dramatic. We say things, you know, we wax poetic sometimes. We say sort of axioms uh, at one point or another, and yet, like, we're not having this conversation with, you know, the score swelling, and we're, you know, having this, you know, we're in this dramatically lit room talking to each other. 
we're talking to each other on our phones in the middle of the day walking around campus and I'm about to go get food from Wawa. It's like the, just the banality of life, I think, is it helps to actually dramatize the big moments because you don't know it's a big moment until you have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And what was really interesting was because I had, uh, I believe your word was curated, <laughs> I would say redact <laughs> in some places because I was the one that was picking what parts of this conversation we were going to talk about. I, you, the, on first reading this, I think thought this happened at night because you didn't look at the timestamp, just the date. So you thought that I was drunk and I was like, no, Tom, it was three in the afternoon. <laughs> like, I was just mad. <laughs> the talk, I guess just talking a little bit about how you weren't expecting me to change as a person as much because you didn't think of me as part of a unit as well. Um, I'm really, really flattered that you didn't think of me as part of a unit at that time because I don't think I thought of myself um, as wholly individual at that point anymore. I'm uh, glad to have had you there to be there as support. All right. Um, so yeah, now we're just going to do a lightning round of um, just different conversations or sometimes just there's one that's literally just one thing that I, I said. Um, but these, <laughs> <was> really funny. <laughs> these take place between uh, June and October of um, 2014. All right. And actually, I get to start out this time, which is great. Um, so at this time, uh, I was in Peru and you were in Williamsburg, I believe, at this point still. So, eh, not so pathetic as a 21-year-old girl crying like a child every time she gets the flu shot. Just think, at least it's not an adrenaline shot to the heart. You seem Pulp Fiction, right? Okay, now I have a new nightmare. Thank you, Tom. And no, but I want to. The death penalty is quite literally my worst fear. There's an amazing sequence in Pulp Fiction about just that, not the death penalty. I think being forced to commit suicide might be worse. I wouldn't know. I mean, via injection specifically. So basically, I have to go watch Pulp Fiction. Next one is dated... July 5th, actually. Oh, it was July 5th, 12.52 a.m. So right after the 4th, I remember on July 4th, I had to work until like 11.30 at night because um, it was so nuts <laughs> in Williamsburg, Virginia, man. They went crazy for the fireworks. <laughs> the 4th always brings out my inner anarchist. In other words, I envy your expatriate position. Also, I started on a new script. All right. Um, so this next one. Uh, is just a couple weeks later. I was talking to Noah the other day and you came up. He thought that perhaps liking my script indicates your as-yet-untapped love of anime. A likely story. Also, the new Planet of the Apes was fucking awesome. How's life? It might indeed. Y'all will just have to introduce me to it. Life is good. I am currently exhausted and very thankful for running water and not being at 13,000 feet, as I spent an entire weekend in Patacancha. I planned on get, I plan on getting drunk and eating a burger. All right. And then oh, so this is just the next day. It's almost it all it's almost a follow-up. <clears throat> cool. Also, now that Noah and I have our apartment, we'll have a decent place to hang out. Perhaps we can treat you to some manly cuisine. What constitutes a manly cuisine? I'm a little afraid to voice my predetermined gendered meal ideas. Stuff that goes with beer? 
I don't know. Just seems fitting given that it's essentially a bachelor pad. Or whiskey also seems appropriate. But all I can think of are meat-related items, to be honest. Yeah, I more or less just meant meals prepared by men. That's fair. Apparently Noah likes Japanese cuisine, which is cool because I'm getting into sake. Between the two of us, I think there's enough for one decent cook. I'm sure y'all will be able to cook all the things. I also like Japanese cuisine a lot. I happen to like most everything that comes out of Japan. But yeah, I guess we could also use the apartment for small bullet gatherings, although I don't know if you'd be interested in doing those anymore. I would totally be interested in doing those. I miss bullets so much. Um, and then this is just later in the same conversation. I think I'm glad I wasn't around to see that phase. It was a bit of a crying, messy semester in general, and by that I mean it was a shit show. Don't take this the wrong way, but having been in one, I think you might have fit right into a theater click. I don't take it the wrong way, as I have also been in a theater click. Aha! How apropos. I had no idea. And this is about a month later. Yeah, it's one of those situations where it, at first it's fine, and then it gets harder, and then it gets easier again. Noah moves in on Saturday, so I think I'm just going to angst out in the apartment for a couple days, and then I'll be fine by the time he shows up. Well, if you still want to drink about it when I get back, offer's on the table. I will probably be missing Peru. Very different, yes I know. So we can have a pity party, haha. I somehow guess you'll prefer a more stoic route, though. Yeah, fuck that. You should come over and eat plain rice and drink sugarless tea. Dot, 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 question mark? It's like a stoic pity party but stoics don't party or pity themselves never mind and at last two months later <clears throat> also giant elmo is freaking me out in your picture i figured should i change it back to my upside down face you do you or what have you don't let the giant elmo haters bring you down yes i identify as a giant elmo hater I have pictures with many, many Sesame Street characters. They're all giant. Maybe that's the problem. Cookie Monster and Oscar are awesome. Almost just so-so. Yeah, but Cookie Monster and Grover and Oscar were not on deck that day. Disappoint! Wow. That's a very sorority way to put that. Please add an ed or mint. I'm talking about fucking Sesame Street characters. I am disappoint. And that's it. Also, there's a better... There's a better way I could have said that. I could have said I'm fucking talking about Sesame Street characters, but no, I said I'm talking about fucking Sesame Street characters. So now, not only have I written that, I've said it twice on public record. I'm throwing these papers up in the air in frustration. <laughs> my own stupidity. So that's perfect as a blending of our two types of humor because most of mine is unintentional syntax choices like that. <laughs> and I didn't even pick up on that one at the time or I would have kept more of that conversation in. So, yeah, I mean, definitely the one that requires the most context is um, the second to last one. Um, and I was talking about my girlfriend, Sarah. Um, we lived in different states, actually. We went to different schools, but we spent the summer together. And so this was maybe the day that she left or the day after yeah, it was the day she, she left. Day she left. It was the day she left. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was just talking about, you know, what was going on and saying, you know, when those kinds of things happen, you're kind of numb to it at first. And so I knew that the hard part was yet to come. To put that on a lighter note, you, there was a part that I cut out 
uh, that was talking about uh, you crying watching E.T. at Movie Tavern. That is not a lighter note, you asshole. <laughs> How is that not a lighter E.T. Note? is a I fucking amazing that's movie. That's not hilarious. It's brilliant. It's genius. Cinema goals. It is a great movie. It is a great movie. I just don't understand why you would cry watching E.T., which you explained to me at the time also, but I still don't get it. Uh, yeah, I can't say anything that doesn't sound tumblery at that point. I would probably think it sounded original as I don't really visit Tumblr, but... Uh, well, I'm sure you're re- familiar with the phrase, but I would say, eh, you don't have divorced parents, check your privilege. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what that movie's about. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make fun of, of your crying at E.T. I, I'm going to try to dig myself out of this hole now. I will admit on, on public record the most embarrassing movie that I cry at every single time. And I don't know if you remember this fun fact or not about me. Not about Is it Happy Feet? No, <laughs> it is not Happy Feet. <laughs> it is the Titanic. Um Oh, but it's not. It's not. Yeah, happy, it's ha- not the point you would think that I would cry at, based on my obsession with Leonardo DiCaprio. I cry when the boat breaks in half because all the people die. Not, not when, not when just one person dies. It has to be a whole boat. <laughs> that doesn't make this better. I don't know why I'm still talking. <laughs> happy feet would have been a better answer. Same director as Mad Max, believe it or not, to bring this whole thing full circle. I feel like that part kind of just speaks for itself. Like, that last part was, like, when we finally, like, like, yeah, we were good friends at that point, but also, like, we had we had really reached that conversation style, which was so comfortable and normal, and it was just so interesting at that point that, like, only at the end there had we known each other for about a year, and it was just, like, the most comfortable and easy thing talking to each other and i don't know if that like strikes you in the same way but like as someone with social anxiety like that's a really big deal i don't have the kind of social i don't I mean i don't really have social anxiety at all just because of my personality but um it's still a big deal when you get to the point where you trust someone like that and you have that kind of a rapport and when someone is important to me I as is very evident by you know these messages but you know different now is that when like I've decided that someone is a really good friend of mine it's pretty tough to get rid of me at that point (laughs) because my friends become my family like I, I get committed to those friendships like I'm want to be a supportive friend i want to be there for people um even though and i what's what's funny to me um about it is we were very close and very you know we had an immense amount of trust for each other and it was kind of like okay we're here like we're both friends but i am a lot more critical of my performance in our friendship after that point when we got back to school because I felt like you had this great understanding of me as a person and I wasn't interacting with you in a way that was conducive to being like a supportive good friend. Um, And it took me a little longer actually to get to that point. And that's like, 
I'm really, really glad that I did. But I think it's a it's a weird, um, almost backwardness for the, I guess, stated personality difference that you and I have. Because I am so extroverted that you would think that that would be something that is, I guess, easier if you were just to look at those like extrovert versus introvert social social personality types you would think it would be easier for me to figure that out but it wasn't in this case and you've actually really helped me to be a more um discerning listener i guess would be the best way to put that i um i honestly didn't know (laughs) you didn't because I could go on for that for like 20 minutes, which no one needs to listen to, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad. And um, yeah, by, by turns, I think that it's funny how your love of the subjective and being in touch with your emotions and feeling emotions completely, how that has... We've just always had this discourse where, I, like, we knew that we kind of butted heads on that issue, a little bit. Like, but at the at the at, at the same time, like, you know, it, it, there were bumps in the road occasionally, but it also kind of created a a sort of uh, beautiful contrast. I think sometimes of um, of worldviews uh, finding weird commonalities and differences that were not abrasive but enlightening and so i haven't i don't think either has has wavered in their convictions or uh, or approaches to life but they they're not the same that they were i mean i i that's what i meant to amend is that i was gonna say we are different people than when we met i i don't want to speak for you i am a different person you've taught me how to be more understanding of people who have different worldviews than I do. You like, it's really fun to uh, debate with you to get in screaming matches with you about really stupid things. It's fun to have a kind of friendship where I like know that at the end of the day, what we're talking about is not really that important. And that's why, that's why that's fun. It's because you and I know each other as people and thus we can talk about having entirely different worldviews because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter when you're able to connect on that kind of a human level. Yeah. I think, I think of anything, there are a few things that I've learned over the years and what one big thing is it's okay to feel good about yourself sometimes because I was very much a conv- of a conviction that feeling good about yourself or like I, I equated it to patting yourself on the back or being complacent, wherein that also became like moral complacence. Whereas I thought that if you if you start on that path, you will become a smug, self-satisfied person unconcerned with the with like the worries of others and the suffering of others. And so don't feel good about yourself. Always remind yourself about what you're doing wrong, how you have failed, how you are, you know, not the person that you could be. And I think that what I've learned is that both can be true in a way and that feeling good about yourself in some aspects doesn't mean that you will become a, you know, self-satisfied, you know, utterly self-satisfied narcissist and that being 
utterly self-critical, which will just lead you into this just this miasma of self-loathing, which also doesn't help anyone. It's just hurting you, especially because when when we met, also it was a time where I was really lonely and I was really down on myself for a lot of reasons. And so it was. I'm I'm glad I met you when I did. <laughs> it's interesting that like kind of flip flopped over the course of our our friendship too, um, where. You know, I I think now I'm going through a lot more struggles than I was at the time where we met. And I wish I could learn the lesson that you have just said that you've learned over time. I wish that would stick, you know, like it's a hard and it's not anything anyone can really teach you. You have to kind of get there on your own. All right. Uh, do you have an honorable mention? I do, but it's kind of a weird one um, because... I don't. Okay, so my honorable mention is the show The Good Wife, uh, but it is not an honorable mention. I think you, Tom, should go watch. Uh, it is a law and order type procedural, but it's more about the law firm than. Yeah, it's about a law firm, not a police department. And I have uh, been watching it since the beginning um and i re i really really enjoy it because i really uh like the characters that they have built um and uh so yeah it's actually still airing but they think they're almost at the end of the last season now so i'm trying to catch up before it actually officially ends but yeah i would like to plug the good wife because i can't think of anything else at the moment <laughs> all right um, my honorable mention is also pretty weird. Um, it's not a thing. It's not a show. It's not music. It's not a podcast. Um, for now, just my honorable mention is um, France, the people of France and the people of Paris, because, you know, and just how they've responded to this terrible tragedy um, is with just dignity and grace and just a, a very admirable sense of, of propriety and fairness. The nation of France just pledged um, to accept 24,000 Syrian refugees. Um, they found a falsified passport on one of the attackers because, um, and the theory is that this pushback against Syrian refugees is what they wanted. And I think that's true. I think that they want the Syrian refugees, one, to not leave, to, to stem that tide. And I think they want people to be turned away because I, I, I think that they want, you know, the hearts and minds of those people to, to harden against the West, um, which is not their immediate enemy, but it is their ideological enemy, their enemy of democracy and, and pluralism and, you know, women being viewed as people. And... I, I'm just so, I, I admire so much that the people who have suffered from this tragedy the most are the ones who fight against the bigotry, um, and, and racism and hatred that stems from this kind of thing most valiantly. And to, I know none of you are going to listen to this, but or, or, to, to those people who support the governors who are currently saying that they want to turn Syrian refugees away, which is illegal, by the way. You are doing exactly what the Islamic State wants you to do. You are playing into their hands. That This is what they want. Your hatred, your bigotry, your racism, your xenophobia, your misunderstanding of their culture. 
that is absolute. They want to stem that fear and misunderstanding and hatred. So look to France as an example. Fin, toujours, vive la France, and uh, je suis Charlie. I amen to that, first of all. I don't really have any thing to add because you've put everything so eloquently actually um if people could stop killing each other that would be great terrorism is obviously a, a threat that is particularly prominent um and harmful and the less we give into that terror as a country the better off we will all be in terms of not falling prey to as as you put it um exactly what they want to do, which is to inspire terror and to stop Syrians from being able to flee a country where women are not viewed as people, um, where they will almost certainly be harmed in some way, whether that be psychologically or physically in their own country, which is just, yeah. I'm really thankful that my home state of Louisiana has voted out our current governor and um, Senator Vitter in one fell swoop, like, uh, yesterday, I think. Uh, so we actually have a democratic governor and hopefully he will not join the ranks of, of the, what is it? 27, 26, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah. Shout out also to Dallas's mayor who has been saying a lot of really great things about, um, how he wants to accept refugees that it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a Christian, but, you know, I think that there there is a time for, you know, a discourse of faith and, and what you're called upon by, you know, or, or what you think you're called upon by, by your faith to do. And he said that, you know, that is the Christian way and um, that uh, he he has also said controversially, but I think very aptly that he's more afraid of, you know, young white males shooting people than he is of Syrian refugees because, hey— you know, are we going to start singling them out now? Because uh, I'm one of them. So please don't. But also statistically, I'm more of a threat. So I think he's he's been saying a lot of um, courageous and very apt and very, very true things. And uh, that's what we need and right that, now. That shouldn't be controversial. I mean, just today there was a or maybe this was yesterday also, but there was a, a shooting, a, a mass shooting in New Orleans. Sixteen people were injured. Two died. You know, what? what is the, if you are looking just at the U.S., which obviously we're not in the context of this discussion, but if you were, the bigger threat that we should be worried about is the people who are shooting each other who are American citizens. That is the bigger security threat that we have right now on American soil. And I mean, that security threat should not be a reason why we should disallow refugees to enter our country. That's absurd on its face. But if you, I mean, if you're going to make that argument, you're looking, you're, you're, you're ignoring what the actual problem is right now in this part of the world. Yep. But happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's all right. We can uh, celebrate Christopher Columbus giving uh, smallpox blankets to the Indians yet again. Eat, drink, be merry, and be, be thankful um, that you are with friends and family in a country which uh, is not in current immediate threat um, from the Islamic State. Be thankful for other things, too, but that's what I'm thankful for. <laughs> You're here. All right. Thanks, Minami. Yep. It's been fun, Tom. Yep. Bye-bye.
Jam of the week, V103. No cosign, no bovine. More swag, and that was my conversation with Naomi Slack. And one thing that I really enjoyed time. about it was that it sort of deviated from our usual medium, our usual format, but very much got at the themes and essence of the show. And I thought that it was a, uh, for me, very personal, but also very enlightening podcast, which I enjoyed a lot. So as I mentioned, the song for today is We Ain't Them by Childish Gambino off of his royalty mixtape. This thing dropped, I think, in the summer of 2012. It's probably my favorite thing by Gambino. It combines a lot of his technical abilities, a lot of his very melodic production style, but also has somewhat more mature themes on it and just more grown-up lyricism. And one of the big themes on royalty actually is family and um, connecting with one's family, uh, even though you might be in different parts of the country, which seemed uh, very appropriate for Thanksgiving. And it's just a dope fucking song. So I hope you all enjoyed it and uh, be back for next week with more podcast. Thanks. on the trap man this shit is much wetter at the studio at 8 a.m hit the booth then eat nigga we ain't them nigga we ain't them drop a line at your facebook status if the shit about a week ago you're still mad at us if there's something on your chest nigga let it out because i'm the best da da da